Um, if you're not normally here, just to let you know we're up to, um, in our summer series, we're looking at uh, just bits and pieces of the book of Philippians. It's a wonderful book, and we're going to look today at uh, a couple of verses from chapter 3. Um, let's pray that God would make this useful. Holy Father, we, we do need your help now. Nothing fruitful can come out of my lips uh, or in our thinking. We pray that you would be at work in and in spite of me and also uh, in each of our minds and hearts that we would see things increasingly in alignment with yourself, that we would live uh, in the abundant way Christ calls us into. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Now, I wonder if you've heard, I'm sure some of you will have, heard of these things called the diagnostic questions. I can see a couple of people looking. You know, the diagnostic. So if you know of the diagnostic questions, or you may have actually heard the questions but not their official title, um, this will be reintroducing you to a couple of noble old friends. If you haven't heard them before, I think you'll find them really helpful. Uh, they have been life-changing for many, many people. So here they are. They're worked out by a guy called Dr. James Kennedy. And uh, the first question, although we're going to major on the second, the first question is this. If you were to die today, have you arrived at the place where you know for sure that you would go to heaven? We're hoping none of you will do that. Well, we hope to arrive in heaven, but not. So just a hypothetical. If you were to die today, uh, are you confident that you'd go to heaven? The second question uh, we're going to look at today is this. The second diagnostic question is, if you were to die today, and God was to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What reasons would you give him? How would you answer him? Let's say, for example, you knew it was at 5 o'clock this afternoon um, that you were leaving the planet and you had a chance to write down an answer. What sorts of things would you put in as your answer to the second of the diagnostic questions? Uh, these lead to very helpful discussions about what real Christianity is about. Um, now, when you get to chapter 3, a bit like the beginning of chapter 4 that we'll look at next week, the call is to joy. One of the things that is extraordinary about Christianity is it commands us to be joyful, which sounds weird, but it's not really. God wants you to know that he wants you to be joyful, that if you're, if you're not joyful, that's not where he wants you to be. And you can be joyful in all sorts of emotional ups. And very different to happiness. You can roughly buy happiness. You cannot buy joy. It's deeper and based on solid things. He says here, chapter 3, verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Uh, and um, we'll probably look at that next week, although that's up to Andrew. Uh, to make that decision. Uh, here we're looking at chapter 4 for us. But the call is to be joyful. But then the very next verse says, watch out. So there are joy robbers. There are things that if you're not careful, they will steal your joy from you. And we don't want that to happen. And God doesn't want it to happen to you. He says in verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. It's a safeguard for you. 
The Bible's very realistic. It knows how hard it is to forget some things that we really would like to forget and how often we forget things that we really need not to forget. Some things stay with us that we wish didn't. The Bible's really clear that forgetfulness is one of the nature. You read all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will forget. It's why the Lord sets up the bread and the wine thing, isn't it? That we may remember him. It's why the Passover, all sorts of things are set up where we bring these, the important realities that will slip from our grasp as we're you know, driven crazy by other things. So he's happy to say it again. But there are people who will come with false teaching into churches who will ultimately destroy your joy. He says, it is we, in verse 3, who are the, who are the circumcision, the, the real circumcision. We serve God by his spirit. What's the mark of people who've got the spirit of God at work in them? It's very clear. It's all over the scriptures. Here it is. Who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we are those who... Boasting in our culture, and this is a result of Christianity, is negative almost always. It was not so in the ancient world. It was regular to boast. You'd actually employ, if you were rich enough, you'd employ people to boast well for you, to write poems of your glory. And it seems weird to us, it's, you know, but that's what they would do. They would boast. They would glory in their achievements. So he says, what are, what are the people of the Spirit do? We boast about Jesus. We want to talk about his achievements. They're really substantial and surprising. And we put no confidence in the flesh, that is just in being human. We have no confidence in our own doings. When you get asked the diagnostic questions, they do reveal whether or not you have any confidence in your flesh, that is, in your own human behaviour. Most humans, overwhelmingly, sadly, even many people who come to church, but in our culture and the religions of the world, they will boast of their achievement. They will tell you what they haven't done, I sometimes mention their uncle was an archdeacon, um, and they'll mention how good they are. I, I've shared with you how odd it is at times when I'm at a social gathering, someone discovers I'm a minister, and they'll tell me how good they are, as if I could care less. As if Christianity is about handing in your books and God marking it, right? Giving you a koala stamp. But that is so deeply felt in the hearts of, from the clever to the not so clever that it's about that, it's not. That's having confidence in the flesh. It's the one thing the people who know God never do. In the second diagnostic questions, we do not say, well, I did this and I did this and I didn't do that, but I did, did do this. Right? That's boasting in the flesh. That's the mark of someone who knows as yet nothing of real Christianity. Ordinary, straightforward Christianity has no boasting in the flesh. It's not about us. The life of someone who meets Jesus will be filled with good works. But that's, that's, you know, that's not the basis of our acceptance with God. So that's what he begins to deal with here. And as you heard, this list, the apostle says, look, if anyone's going to boast about religious qualifications, I, I'm up there. You know, I'm the best of the best. And he gives us a list. He then says it's all rubbish. He's not very impressed with it. But that's what these people are saying. You need to become really, truly Jewish. So he goes through his qualifications. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So he, he wasn't a Johnny come lately who sort of joined the Jewish people by choices as an adult. No, no, he was up there from the beginning. He's a, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, blimey child. That's, that's a glorious tribe of the people of God. So he talks about the things he received, 
through birth, various privileges. He could sing that song. You know that wonderful song? Uh, he is an Englishman. Gilbert Sullivan, he is an Englishman. It's greatly to his credit, uh, etc. He could have been a Russian, French, Prussian, something else. But he is an Englishman, right? People did do a lot of bragging in their birth. Hear people talk about their pride in their... Uh, he, he could have done that. And then he's got a whole lot of achievements as well, showing his zeal. He was an overachiever. Verse 7 is where we want to get to. This is, some people have described, some scholars I've read this week, describe verses 7 or 8 that we're going to look at today as the thesis sentence. Uh, it's a language I've never used, but I looked it up to see exactly what it means. And it means it's supposed to be in the first paragraph, if you're writing a good essay. It tells you what on earth the whole thing is about. What's the driving passion and concern and questions? These verses are it. Now, I've just got a version here which is slightly more literal from the original. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not much different to what you've got in your Bible. Just, it just, even I've kept some of the word order odd because languages use, but they put language, uh, words in different places. But have a look at what he says now. He's just given a list of this magnificent achievement that shows just how lucky God is to have him on the planet. Then he says, whatever things were gained to me, I now consider to be loss. Or the version I've got up there for you, what things were to me gain, these I've counted for Christ, loss. The word order helps us to see sometimes the, uh, the main words because in Greek you can move the words around to emphasise them by putting them, say, at the end of the sentence. So, he's, so verse 7, verse 8's almost the same thing but just said a bit harder. Verse 7, what things were to be gain, that list I've just given you and worked so hard for, uh, these I have counted for Christ's sake as loss. Yes, and more also. I am counting all things to be loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, the Lord of me. So when we do things, we normally say, my Lord. But that's, that's where it reads. For whom I have lost all these things, and now I count them as excrement so that I may gain Christ. So he is using here accounting language, which some of you will be very comfortable with. I work really, really hard to understand all the work that Ron and Janet and others do, you know, to, to get the financial accounts up. And Frank, they don't know who worked out those rules, but it just takes a long time. Why is that on that column and not on that column? But uh, anyhow. But here he's talking about profit and loss, loss and gain, assets and costs, etc. That's the language he's using. But it's worth noticing in verse 7 he speaks about something that's happened once in the past and verse 8 he uses a different, uh, the grammar of the verse is different and it's an ongoing thing. So he says, I had a moment when suddenly the things that I used to think were my great assets, I now realise they're losses. Right? And that, that was a moment that happened to him when he met Christ. Presumably about that time they met um, with Paul not particularly happy about the meeting on the Damascus Road. But in verse 8... He uses the same word, counting or considering how you assess something. It's an intellectual assessment word. He says, yes and more, I am counting all things to be lost. That's stronger. So that was those things lost. Now he says everything is lost compared to the excellence of knowing Jesus, right? being in a relationship with the eternal Son of God, not just the forgiveness and all the significance of that, which, which he comes back to in the verses after this, that he's right with God on the judgment day, but also just the sheer pleasure of getting to know the one who made all things. 
So we've been away a little bit, uh, had a couple of days down the coast. You just see these crazy, beautiful birds. And some of the ones that walk with their knees going back the wrong way. And that's just, that's just a, I take it that's a designer's whim, right? Beautiful, effective. Uh, to know the person who thought of those, who invented the pussycat, right? Oh, amazing, right? And that he, he's the one who came here searching you out to die for you and then rose again, ripping the guts out of death, returned to be with his father and has promised to come back, right? who loves and loves and forgives. And for, to know that person, right? as Janice, that lady, says, you know, it, you know he, just, he just keeps on loving me. He's my everything. She, she knows him. And this is the genesis of authentic Christian life is in verse 7. And then verse 8 is as it continues growing. Right? It starts there with that radical transformation of you and of priorities. But then verse 8, I'm counting all these things to be lost. It's interesting. So he doesn't look back and think, gee, I was, I was really enthusiastic as a Christian back then. I used to do all this mission work and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, as I've got older, I've sort of got more mature. And, you know, you know, I, I, I'm, no, 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 that's not how he's doing it. Paul, he's gone from saying that big change when he met Jesus. Now he's saying in the ongoing, this is at least 20 years after he met Jesus at Damascus, on the Damascus Road. He, is, he seems to have got even clearer on so valuing Jesus and the things that last that the things that other people die for and sell their soul for, he just thinks it's just, it's just nothingness compared to that. Right? So... As you can see there, he uses these profit loss words from the world of accounting. Jesus does it too, doesn't he? And this, I think this is where, maybe where Paul learned it from Jesus, where, where Jesus says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And of course the tragedy is probably people in this room are losing their soul for a million truckloads less than the whole world. Right? Some relationship, some promotion, some house. We're doing all sorts of things that are endangering our soul. Right? Even the world. You haven't even got the whole world. So he uses profit loss. He's quite happy for people to think quite cool and, cool and calm-headedly. Is it worth it? So all the things that used to be the apostle, would, he worked so hard and he would brag about them and boast about them and drop them into conversation so you knew just how pure and how hard-working he was. It's all rubbish. It's all loss so that he can gain Christ. The, the one thing he, he, he's keen on gaining is Jesus Christ. And then he uses this strong word, doesn't he? Um, he he's not saying, oh, man, it's really hard. I, I really, I'm going to give this up. You know, oh, I'm going to give this money to CMS or I'm going to so, you know, take all my assets that give me my security. And, oh, I'm gonna, it's like going to the dentist. I'm going to tear my teeth. No, no, no. He says... When he sees clearly who Jesus is, these other things are just like, well, the word is clearly excrement. Now, I've got this bag here, and I, I wanted to bring a... In fact, we were down the coast just for a day on Friday, and Ricky did this word in Greek. And it is one of those, I like that thing that uh, Seinfeld says, if you came to Earth and you saw two species walking and one of them doing their business and the other one picking it up, who's in charge? Huh? <laughs> who's, as it were, the top dog? Anyhow, 
I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to keep this one and, and, and bring it to church because we're dealing with excrement. And, and she, she said, I shouldn't. So she's a wise woman. That's just dirt if you want to check it later on. <laughs> Particularly since at 8 o'clock we did communion, so I thought I shouldn't be, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, it's just good, clean, honest dirt. But notice what the apostle is saying. He sees Jesus so clearly. And he's going to suggest a few verses later, this is open for all of us. This is not just the super elite, the apostles. This is, in a sense, ordinary, mature, knowing Jesus. He said, it's just like chucking the excrement out. Right? When I take the garbage down on Monday night, I never sob a little tear. Right? <laughs> Good. Get rid of it. And that's what he's saying. He said, because he's seen Jesus Christ clearly, 20 years after his spectacular conversion, right? he says, in the ongoing, continuous sense, He's happy just to keep, just because all that matters is maintaining his relationship and growing his relationship with Jesus that the subsequent verses talk about. So the genesis of authentic Christian life reverses everything and the growing of the authentic life continues that happening. And so the problem, and why, one of the reasons why I do think, and I don't attribute a, a huge amount to the devil, but one of the reasons why I think the evil one wants you to stay busy, 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 busy is because that will, that will, in the end, blind you. You will not have time to regain sight. So when you do another degree or you know, work, take a promotion that perhaps you don't need, there's nothing wrong with taking promotions. If you're gonna get the money, most come to the children of God, they can use it well. But I, I know people who've knocked back, finally arriving at the top of their career. I'm going to call Russell Powell, he's not related. Right? He was offered the job of jobs in his profession, he knocked it back because he said the time would have to come from either his family or his church, and he said, I'm not, I'm not taxing either of those two anymore. But to keep busy so you don't have time to slow down with the scriptures, slow down to pray, get all rushy, rushy, rushy. That's deadly, brothers and sisters. That, that will cause you to look back at other times when you used to do that and think, oh, wasn't it nice when I was young and enthusiastic? No, no, no. That's never a, a position that the scriptures hold. You know, Jesus talks about how it's insufferable to him that in the book of Revelation that people have lost their first love. Right? The Apostle Paul has not done that. He's kept it clear. He's still excited about Jesus. This is ordinary, healthy Christianity. And he goes on at the end of chapter 3, he mentions a few other things, and then he says, all of us then who are mature should take the same view of, of all things. Verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have, have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we live. It's those sort of priorities. This is the mark of Christian growth. This is the thing to, to decide, isn't it, for 2024? You want, you want to know the joy that, that Christ has died to bring you and the Spirit brings? Right? You need to get your eyes on him. Right? Sing the hymns that are chosen, which often are beautiful expressions of devotion to God, aren't they? Uh, and sing them with your heart and your mind at work. That's why it's, please don't feel bad about this. If you got here late, that's okay. I'm not having to go to anyone in particular. But yet, you know, things hold us up. But to miss the first two songs at church regularly is a mark of immaturity, right? It's bad. Now, I know, frankly, sometimes you've got kids, if you, if you, if you get out of the home by midday, that's a miracle. I, I, I do remember those happy old days. But if you've just taken, oh, you know, it doesn't really start till after the second song. No, no, the hymns are some of the best times to clear your windscreen and for the Spirit to remind you, not just of the, the facts, but of the emotional power of them. 
To grow in the authentic Christian life is to grow in our appreciation of Jesus. Right? Christ Jesus, the Lord of me, as he says. Now, let me take you to, um, just so you can see how this is exactly what Jesus thinks about life and everything. Here's, here's what some people suggest are the essential two parables. I don't know how they worked that out, but I have shared this when we looked at this some years ago. Matthew 13, these parables, these two parables together, the pearls and the treasure. Some scholars say these take you to the very heart of what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is being in that relationship with the king, Jesus the Christ. Listen to what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven, that is, being caught up with him, is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy he goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Again, in case you didn't get it, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a merchant who's seeking for fine pearls. This guy's looking. The first guy just found it by accident. This guy's looking. He's searching for fine pearls. Upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and bought it. You can see the absolute revolutionary transformation of, of everything these people held as important. They had a whole lot of treasure at home, like we've all got stuff that is treasure at home that we would protect and try to rescue and weep if it got burnt or destroyed by a flood. We've all got treasures. You may have more different treasures. But the guy gets to the point. He's, he's just out working. He's a labourer. He doesn't own the field. He's just a paid labourer. He's, he's ploughing. And this happened sometimes then because people did tend to hide their treasures in the earth, particularly when various armies would come and destroy and hunt. Um, he bumps into this thing, digs it up, and there's this treasure. Right? Now, what should he do? Well, he hides it, doesn't steal it, hides it, puts it back where it was, goes and buys the field. Some people go, oh, that's not very nice. Of course it's fine to do it. If the bloke who owned the field owned the treasure, he wouldn't have sold the field. It could have been there for generations. That, you know, people get all so moralistic. Oh, I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do. Jesus It's theft, isn't it, really? It doesn't belong to him. It doesn't belong to anybody. But the crucial thing is to hear what Jesus is saying. He said, to discover the kingdom of God, to discover the king, Jesus, the one who loves you and dies for you. Everything else is nonsense. All these treasures that we put out, you know, that we think will make us deeply happy. They don't. Make you happy when you get them. But they just don't last. And everything is just a split second, isn't it, in eternity? Look at Joe with his silly little short life, 103 years. Now, he wasn't silly. He understood 103 years as nothing compared to eternity. Right? So we talk about long-term planning. It's not... Superannuation, it's a good thing to do. I'm not against it. I'm not a complete idiot. Right? Right? But it's, it's not long-term planning. This is long-term planning. This is short-term planning, right? If you get this wrong, so what? You get that wrong, that, according to Jesus, is a true tragedy. You find the treasure in the field. Suddenly, the guy's gone home. He's selling his golf clubs. He's selling his guitar. He's selling who knows what, selling the family photos. He, nothing matters. And that's what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. If you think that's extreme, you're blind. You think Jesus is some lunatic extremist? He's the only guy who can see clearly. And he says it's worth everything. Right? 
You can imagine people watching this guy who's just trying to get the field. He's gone mad. He's gone, no, he hasn't. He's as sane as anything. He's doing exactly the sensible thing. He knows this is the one thing you've got to get your hands on. Right? And the second guy, and I, I think when I became a Christian, I was more like that bloke, just stumbling along. Who'd, who'd have thought? Other people, like some of you, have been looking and searching carefully. You're looking for fine pearls. And suddenly in Jesus, you find the pearl of great price. It's not just fine, it is fine, but it's deeply valuable. And he does the same thing, everything goes. The values are completely set aright. That's what Paul is talking about here. Growing as an authentic Christian is simply seeing those things more and more clearly and more and more, and more happily and easily distributing things uh, in the way that will suit the kingdom. Genesis of the authentic Christian life, verse 7. The growing in the authentic Christian life, verse 8. Lastly, um, somewhat more briefly, the genius of authentic Christian life. Now, I'm using genius in an old-fashioned way. Um, I looked it up in the dictionary. Genius can mean peculiar, the peculiar or distinctive identity of something. Right? So the genius of rugby union is, I've got no idea, but there's some, there's some essential genius going on there. Uh, that makes it better than soccer or whatever else. But um, don't argue. The, ge the genius of, of Christianity is this. As he says in verse 3, and then he illustrates in all these verses, we do not have any confidence in the flesh, in ourselves, and all the trinkets that our society says you must have to have a life right? and have security. No, no, no. Our confidence in our boasting and our bragging is all about Jesus Christ, the King, the Eternal One. That's, it's not looking at ourselves. God does not want to mark your books. He does not want you to get the liquid paper out and correct things and try to hide things. He's not interested in that. His son has dealt with all that. And he's interested in his beloved son. So he's going to say this as he goes on, not having the righteousness that we have achieved but the righteousness we receive, the right standing we receive from God. It's a gift, bought at a terrible cost. That's why Christianity, the, the, the genius, the sort of the dynamic of real Jesus-y Christianity is it's this obsession with him, not me. Yes, I'm a disappointing person. You think you're disappointed with me? I'm much more disappointed with me than I think you are. I find myself un intolerably disappointing. But I know when it comes to God, I'm okay. Because Christ is the one who has dealt with my standing before God. And he's fairly good at it. And I don't do him any honour by going on and on about my weaknesses and the particular weaknesses that I have that you don't have. Yes, admit it. And thank God for Jesus, his beloved son, the perfect redeemer. And that's why when Christians talk about... About, about spirituality, we're talking about him. Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul says, Him we proclaim. Or in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. That's the message, two words. Four words in 2 Corinthians. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. The summary of his preaching in Acts, in, in the book of Athens, is he preached Christ and the resurrection. The obsession in Christian communication is with him. And I'm ashamed of myself with some of my long-term friends 
that I've allowed myself to spend probably hundreds of hours discussing and debating other secondary issues. So at least one of my friends, I think, I think he thinks he's heard my arguments for Christianity. I don't think he's heard anything because I've not kept the focus on Jesus. That's where the Holy Spirit wants to focus and he's remarkably unknown by people who think they know him. The genius of Christianity is that we boast about Jesus. Um, the surpassing worth of knowing someone that wonderful. That Christ is not to have, and I remember hearing this at CMS Summer School years ago, that Christ is not to have a place in your life. Christ is not just to be prominent in our life. The only logical place for Christ to be is utterly preeminent, ruling supreme, because nothing else deserves that place in your life or deserves to have a louder voice, a more shaping voice in your life than the Christ who loves you and died for you. And that's why baptism and the Lord's Supper, they speak of us being passive and weak. When you take the Lord's Supper, you put your hands out like a beggar to receive the food and the wine that speak of Christ's death for you. And in the baptism, you receive the washing, the symbol of the washing. It's all about us being fundamentally, actively passive. Right? It's about him, what he has done, and us getting that into our head and hearts. So uh, I hope you find this useful. I hope you picked up the thesis sentence. It's all about, not about us. The answer to the, to the um, second diagnostic question is not what I have done, how sincere I've been, how I've gone to church regularly and I've put up with enormously long sermons and all that sort of stuff. But it's about simply saying, him. I trust him. He died for me. And that sets our hearts on fire and clarifies our vision again. And we get to sing songs about what Christ alone has done and who deals with all the great painful areas of life. It's all in his magnificent hands. So Paul said, I don't post about all the stuff I used to go on about. It's all about him. So friends, let's stand and sing about him.